0: Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And
1: I'm Bob Back. Today in the program, Wyoming's U.S. Senators are among those trying to convince Republicans
2: to vote to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Lengthy, productive discussions on areas uh, of agreement and areas where we still have work to do.
0: A UW trail building program created a crew this summer specifically for veterans in need of a job.
3: I mean, I've just never worked with a crew that can just nonstop work. And these guys
1: are them. They're elite. And we'll find out what could happen to fish if Congress approves
4: one of Wyoming's water storage projects. The concerns really revolve around like how the project's implemented.
0: Those stories and more are coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News.
1: Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck.
5: And I'm
0: Caroline Ballard. As the Senate health insurance reform effort remains on life support, Wyoming's two senators are pushing their Republican colleagues to get on board with the effort. Correspondent Matt Laszlo reports from Washington that they face an uphill battle, convincing some frustrated senators to go along.
6: Senator John Barrasso literally burned the midnight oil on Wednesday, when he invited a large group of Republican senators into his office for last-minute negotiations on their party's health insurance reform plan. Barrasso emerged late and was the last to address the 30 or so reporters who huddled outside for hours.
2: Well, thank you all for uh, staying around. As you know, we had a very uh, involved
6: meeting. You know who was here. You're going to have to see who came and went. During their meeting, news broke that Senator John McCain had been diagnosed with a brain tumor. That halted the meeting as a sender led the group in prayer. Barrasso says it was a tough blow. It was a a shock,
2: uh, the news as it came, and uh, we were all very concerned for him, his health, his well-being. Many of us traveled the world with him. He is somebody of incredible credibility, uh, as well as great courage and great character, and if anybody can beat this, John McCain's the man.
6: The news of McCain's health is not only tough for most, if not everyone, in Washington to hear. It also makes the job of passing a health bill tougher for Barrasso and other Republican leaders. That's because they need 50 votes to even start debate on the bill next week. Barrasso says while they still don't know what the final package will look like, he's optimistic they can fulfill their seven-year-old campaign promise to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. Uh, in terms of the substance of the meeting,
2: uh, lengthy, productive discussions on areas uh, of agreement and areas where we still have work to do. We still do have work to do to get to a a vote of 50, but uh, people are committed to continuing that work to finding a solution to help uh, the American people who have been living for so many years with the Obama health care law.
6: But other Republicans say Barrasso and other GOP leaders messed up the effort from the beginning by not holding open hearings and by crafting the legislation behind closed doors. Tennessee Republican Senator Bob Corker says he'll vote to move Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's bill forward, but he still thinks it stinks.
7: Taking on sort of a bizarre, like, you know, bidding process, and I, I hope we end
8: up with something good, and I'll, I'll move to proceed
2: to anything that we do to proceed to, but.
8: I fear that it's beginning to lack coherency as people, um, you know, again, it's beginning to feel like a bazaar, much like how Obamacare was put together.
6: Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins is refusing to support the measure. She says it's time to go back to square one and sit down with Democrats and hold actual hearings.
5: I've been very straightforward about where I stand. I, I really think at this point, particularly given the divisions in our conference, that we should go back to the normal order, have hearings on the problems with the Affordable Care Act, of which there are many, and see if we can get bipartisan bills.
6: While many Republicans are wavering, mostly because they don't have specifics yet. Wyoming senior Senator Mike Enzi told his colleagues on the Senate floor that he's fully behind the effort.
1: This isn't just about politics, this is about real people and whether or not they can afford an insurance premium that is in some cases higher than their rent or their mortgage payments each month. Even before its passage, my Republican colleagues and I have talked about the danger that Obamacare posed to private insurance markets.
6: With no final product, Lindsay still says the GOP has to keep its campaign pledge.
1: We're striking at the heart of Obamacare by removing its mandates and taxes while putting Medicaid on a more sustainable footing. You may have read a little something about the challenges of moving a health care bill forward, but the alternative is to do what our colleagues on the other side of the aisle have done for seven years and watch Obamacare crater. We don't think that's the right thing to do.
6: The House already passed its health care reform bill, and now many vulnerable Republicans in that chamber are wondering if they walk the plank for nothing. Congresswoman Liz Cheney is not in that group. She says Republicans in the Senate need to act, and adds that she supports President Trump's call for an outright repeal vote next week that doesn't include a replacement bill.
3: Look, I uh,
5: I think it's really important if, if we uh, — I would be in favor of a repeal bill that gives us a, a time frame within which to put a replacement into place. Um, But we don't have any choice. It's not like we can just stay with status quo. We've gotta do something. And if that's what they've got the votes to do, I could support it and I'd like to see it happen.
6: The Senate is expected to vote on the health proposal as early as Tuesday, even if no one in Washington seems to know what that bill will actually be. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington.
1: As we all know, the Donald Trump administration has been unique. One of those tasked with following the president is NPR political correspondent Don Gagne. After beginning his career based in Detroit, Gagne came to Washington to cover the George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations. Gagne came to Jackson this week as well to talk about covering this administration. He joined us at the Snow King to explain that President Trump's behavior is not all that surprising.
9: It's, you know, been something that's been going on throughout the campaign, obviously. So in some ways, we're we're conditioned to the unusual nature of this administration and this presidency so far because we watched candidate Donald Trump for, you know, about a year and a half. And this was how he operated day in and day out during the campaign. Uh, It was unusual to see it in a candidate, uh, but it is really unusual to see it in the president of the United States, and uh, just the the notion that you 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 keep. Uh, hearing people talk, and I mean voters, but I also mean, you know, pundits and, and even other elected officials talk about um, if he's redefining the presidency, if he's acting presidential, uh, if, uh, if tweeting at five or six in the morning is an appropriate thing for a president to do. There are so many questions that just keep coming up as part of the discussion that it's, uh, it's almost impossible at this point. You know, with, with, without your scorecard to keep track of the unusual things that we've seen over the first six, as you say, almost seven months of this presidency.
1: Lots of people wondered when he was campaigning if this was just an act, if this was him putting us all on. Uh, what's your assessment so far?
9: Yeah, I mean, I never thought he was putting us all on. Uh, I sure knew it was an unusual, unorthodox. Uh, you know, uh, and and it felt like. Especially if you looked at polls, once we got to the general election, it felt like a pretty long shot way to seek the presidency. Obviously, he succeeded in in, in winning the presidency. He's he's clearly serious about being president, and serious about some of the things he wants to do, uh, where he obviously runs into trouble is how to, you know, navigate the legislative process, how to uh, tackle something like health care, which even he has admitted to us on a couple of occasions. You know, who knew that it would be so complicated? Well, the people who knew were the people who tried to do this for a long time, uh, but he's, he's come to that realization and that revelation now that he's in the White House.
1: We've seen people who have not had a great deal of political experience before and and maybe struggled themselves, but they always had great staffs around them. I guess I was expecting Donald Trump, being a businessman, to maybe bring in those kind of people. Is that part of the reason he's gotten off to a slow start? Because we've got a lot of unusual people in this administration.
9: Right. uh, his, His experience is so different, and he really is trying to function as president as he did as the the head of his real estate empire and his reality television show empire. He's tried to kind of take that model and impose it on the presidency, at least with George W. Bush, with Barack Obama, who also did not have a ton of time in elective office, you know, Bush had been governor of a big state, Texas, and had dealt with complicated issues like, you know, education reform and immigration, especially immigration in the state of Texas. Uh, Barack, uh, Barack Obama, Senator Barack Obama as as president, uh, uh didn't, didn't deal hands-on with as many of those issues, especially not in the way that a governor does. But uh, again, as you said, each of them brought in a chief of staff who knew how to kind of take, take control in the White House and control the schedule and control who sees the president and, and be very watchful of the president's time. And what we have with President Trump is a chief of staff who is not uh, first among you know, equals in the White House, who does not seem to control the schedule and control the flow of, of meetings and information that of course is Reince Priebus, the former, former uh, RNC chair. Uh, we have these different power bases each, each with seemingly, you know, access to the president when they want it, uh, whenever they want it. And they are often competing and arguing and fighting with one another over what direction the White House should go on any of these big issues they're wrestling with. And the president seems to encourage that. He seems to like that atmosphere where people are butting heads. Now, it also means where people are, uh, you know, leaking and uh, looking to undermine the others so that their point of view can come through. And it's made for, uh, you know, kind of a very volatile first few months as we wait to see if all of this settles in in any sort of traditional way. But it sure hasn't yet.
1: The conversations I hear in Wyoming are people think there's, it's just chaos. When you're in the middle of all of this, how does it feel to you? I,
9: I, ca- chaos is a word that I hear. It it, it doesn't feel like, quote-unquote, chaos, uh, but it certainly is unusual and it certainly is different. And there are certainly times when you're not sure who's uh, making the decision or whose advice the president is listening to. So in in that regard, uh, uh, there are times when it seems very, very disorganized. Uh, but again, that seems to be the way he likes it. And as soon as there s- seems to be a settling, you know, a time when uh, the press secretary is maybe having a good day or uh, other uh, you know others who are usually you know arguing with one another within the white house they suddenly seem to be on the same page that that's when the president himself seems to disrupt things with a uh, a tweet that's totally off topic from uh, you know the thing they're trying to accomplish on that day and it brings all of the focus away from the things that the White House thought it was going to be talking about that day, so you never know where the where the disruption or the disorganization is going to come from.
1: One last thing for you before we let you go: the Affordable Care Act, the overhaul plan, falls right flat on its face. How is this going to be viewed?
9: It does say that um, this is a lot, lot harder than the White House, and I think even, even, you know, Mitch McConnell thought it would be, uh, uh, especially, you know, getting, getting, getting something through the Senate uh, that, that can win the votes of those conservatives and moderates. And if we look at what's happened in the last week or so, you've had votes fall off both of those ends. Uh, so it's not like he's even able to please either or. At this point so it speaks to how narrow this Republican majority is in the Senate uh, but it's still a majority but it says to the president that if he's going to get things done he can't just count on those 52 votes to be there and he's gonna have to he's gonna have to do a lot of work especially since there are big complicated things going forward that he hopes to do If they can't do health care, complicated as it is, uh, these other things are, are potentially equally as hard. Don Gagne, welcome to Wyoming. Thank you. It's a beautiful place. I'm glad to be here. Thank you.
0: When we come back, we'll look at concern over wastewater pits. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard.
1: And I'm Bob Beck. Drilling for oil and gas produces millions of barrels of salty wastewater each day. When it spills or touches farmland, it can render the soil infertile for generations. This is a problem today for North Dakota's legacy oil fields, where companies decades ago dumped wastewater into open pits in farmers' fields. Those pits have since evaporated and spread salt acres from the original sites. The state is looking at possibly hundreds of millions of dollars in cleanup costs and is now investigating ways to reclaim that land so that crops can grow there once again. Inside Energy's Amy Sisk reports.
10: Way up in northern North Dakota is an old oil field active since the 1950s. Hey there, Clark? Yeah, I'm Clark. I meet Clark Stevens on a gravel road near the small town of Glenburn. Just to the east of us, his wheat fields span for acres and acres. In the middle is a three-acre patch of barren soil.
7: We're always farming around areas like this and every year they continue to grow.
10: Spread out around us are a handful of pump jacks. Some have been here decades, pulling oil to the Earth's surface. Back then, trucks took brine from nearby wells and dumped it into a pit dug into this field. Sites like these, known as legacy brine pits, were condemned in the 1980s, but they were never cleaned up. And over the years, the brine has seeped deeper into the soil, migrated, and expanded
1: Because of the size of these pits and how big they've grown because of the salt contamination, we're talking possibly up to five acres or even more on some of these
2: sites.
10: Cody Vanderbush is the reclamation supervisor for the State Department of Mineral Resources. He sees an opportunity in this toxic legacy to address ongoing problems with brine spills.
1: I think these ponds are the worst case scenario in North Dakota. If we can figure out how to clean up these, we're going to learn a lot about how to clean up spills that have only been there say, a week versus something that's been there for 50 years.
10: This spring, lawmakers prodded by landowners designated $5 million to research this issue. Ultimately, cleanup of these sites could cost hundreds of millions of dollars, with the bulk of that bill potentially falling to the state. And there are a lot of questions to answer. Number one, how many of these pits exist? The state thinks 120, but doesn't know for sure. Then, were farmers ever compensated? And what cleanup techniques will actually work? One of the people trying to figure this out is Kevin Sedovic. He's a rangeland specialist with the North Dakota State University Extension Service. He walks with me through the barren patch on Clark Stevens' farm.
2: If nothing, there's just an eyesore.
10: We stop in an area where it's so salty, not even weeds will grow.
2: So they basically starved to death of water. And so a plant dies of dehydration.
10: Sedipic and I crouch down to touch the salt. So you say this is just table salt here.
2: Yep. So did you just look like your finger.
10: That's really salty. It's
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> really salty.
10: But the salt isn't just sprinkled atop the ground, it has seeped down and is now at least a couple of feet deep, bound to soil particles. Sedevik is searching for a cheap solution to get this area productive once again. Not everything he's tried has worked. What's most promising, he says, is gypsum. It's a calcium-based powder that binds to the salt. A good rain draws the calcium and salt deeper into the soil, leaving enough room for the grass's roots to grow.
2: So here's the grass that's still actually surviving.
10: Two-thirds of the grasses in this trial are still alive.
2: We at least created a crop that we could either graze, or we could hay for hay production, or we can provide a wildlife habitat.
10: The soil is still too salty for crops like wheat, barley, or soybeans. Sedovick says he hopes to address that with more research. The Northwest Landowners Association is the group pushing the legislature to deal with this issue. Troy Coons is the chairman. He's got a lot of faith in the process.
2: You know, there, there's people out there, there's smart people that will start doing some different research and testing and somebody will come up with something.
10: So that one day, fields like the one Clark Stevens Farms will no longer have big empty patches.
7: Any Anything you can do to get the land productive again, I mean, you know, you want to leave it for the next generation better than, than you had it.
10: And finally right a problem 60 years in the making. For Inside Energy, I'm Amy
0: Sisk. In Wyoming, the industry still uses open wastewater pits. Newer commercial pits have put up a bond to pay for eventual cleanup, but 11 older ponds have no bonds. The state is now changing the rules to make sure all pit owners pay for reclamation, targeting that loophole for older pits. One pit owner sees the move as unfair and nearly impossible while another sees it as necessary. Inside Energy's Madeline Beck
11: reports. Wastewater ponds aren't what I expected. I stood on a road surrounded by four of these ponds in Bill, Wyoming, and I couldn't help but admiring the fountains. They look like something that should be in front of a Las Vegas casino, fanning out in all directions, shooting up several feet. Of course, the fountains aren't for looks. They help evaporate the water and hold off bacteria, keeping the smell down.
7: And when we'll come out here, you'll smell a little bit of an odor coming off of these ponds, the produced water odor, but it's not that strong.
11: It's a kind of tangy plastic smell. That was Jerry Hamel. He manages this facility called Grasslands Environmental. He's actually a self-proclaimed environmentalist himself. He explained it as the wind picked up.
7: What's a better place for me to protect the environment than within the industry to ensure that we are taking care of it?
11: Driving around Grasslands Landfill, he stops to show how his operations try to protect wildlife. We see a small bird, a mother killdeer, waddling in front of us, trying to distract us away from her nest. Hamel points out the passenger window.
7: That dark gray and that little bit of green, it's those dark gray rocks. There's a nest right square in the middle of them.
11: Right here? Yeah. Aha! There they are! (laughs) When this pond started operations in 2014, Hamel's company paid state regulators a bond, essentially insurance, to cover eventual cleanup costs. Not all of Wyoming's 35 permitted commercial ponds are required to pay this bond though. 11 older ponds were permitted before 1989. There was no bond requirement back then. If those companies go under, taxpayers could be stuck with a cleanup bill of between seven and nine million dollars total. It's happened in the past one commercial wastewater pond in Sublette County, Wyoming, had to be remediated by the state at a cost of $750,000. Regulators are now hoping to make sure that doesn't happen again. Earlier this summer, a state advisory board voted to require bonds on the older ponds. Hamel is supportive, saying his company has already gone above and beyond state regs to make sure the area stays clean and protects the environment.
7: The majority of facilities don't have the level of protection that grasslands does. It came at a cost this facility cost about three times what comparable facilities that can handle this much water cost to
11: build but the new bonds are not good news for pond owner dennis lawrence
2: the bottom line is we don't have the money we're not in operation our corporation has no money
11: lawrence is co-owner of the parkman reservoir an older wastewater pond in northeast wyoming that is currently unbonded He says he's been fighting legal battles and paying fines over the years as regulations changed. His berms were too low, his netting inadequate. One dispute saddled him with a bill of more than $240,000 from the Environmental Protection Agency. The agency noted that contaminants like oil had made their way into his open-air evaporation pond, making for a, quote, imminent threat to the environment. If the state starts requiring additional financial assurances, he says he won't be able to pay
2: you know I know it sits back there don't have the final solution I've uh, lost many sleepless nights worrying about uh, you know being fine being done whatever going back to court again it's not a it's not a pleasant experience
11: the regulation is not yet a done deal and Keith Gill of the Department of Environmental Quality wants companies to come forward in the meantime if they have concerns
1: we believe the natural resources the environment and industry itself can coexist, and that's, that's why we have these rules and regulations.
11: Given the huge volumes of wastewater produced, cleanup and management is a challenge for all states involved in oil and gas production. Ponds are problematic, but so are injection wells, which have been proven in Texas and Oklahoma to be linked to earthquakes. The latest trend? Finding cost-effective ways to recycle and reuse the wastewater. For Inside Energy, I'm Madeline Beck.
0: Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. When we come back, we'll look at what might happen to fish if a Wyoming dam is enhanced. This is Open Spaces.
1: Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck.
0: And I'm Caroline Ballard. Dubois author and wilderness outfitter Tori Taylor has released a new book called On the Trail of the Mountain Shoshone Sheep Eaters, a High Altitude Archaeological Odyssey. The book is a gripping read about Taylor's personal role in the discoveries of how this prehistoric tribe thrived in Wyoming's highest elevations and how Taylor experimented with a mountain Shoshone lifestyle. He builds and uses their tools, and even eats their paleo diet. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards has more.
8: I was born in Colorado Springs at, at the foot of 14,110 feet, pike Peak, and so... Where plains meet the mountains has always been in my blood and always where I preferred to live. But when I was a young man and it came time for me to leave home, I uh, really didn't know where I was going to go, I just knew I needed to go somewhere. And so I saddled my saddle horse and packed my pack horse and started north uh, pretty much through the mountains of Colorado along the Continental Divide and and, uh, Wyoming was gotten away and so I stumbled in here about 45 years ago and um, came home to a place I never had been before and found my new home. My heart has always been with horses and mountains so I feel very lucky to have been able to make a career with my wife Meredith in the outfitting business.
5: In his many backcountry trips, Tori Taylor began finding numerous artifacts. Soapstone bowls, wiki-up lodges, grinding stones. And he knew scientists needed to know about these objects. So he contacted local anthropologists, and it wasn't long before they were using his guiding services to document what they learned, including the importance of bighorn sheep to the Mount Shoshone. Taylor says they were once as common as elk are now, and the tribe used their meat in hides, for everything.
8: I learned best by, by doing hands-on things. And so early on in my archaeology uh, odyssey, I began trying to learn a lot of the, the ancient ways, the ancient skills on what, what's it like to make a projectile point out of a, out of a piece of obsidian, what's it like to tan a sheep hide uh, and make clothing out of it. What's it like to make uh, a ladle out of a ram's horn?
5: Taylor was present for the discovery of High Rise Village, over 60 lodge pads on a mountainside above Timberline. It changed the way scientists thought about human habitation at high elevations. It wasn't just a few hunters who made the trip to the high country. The entire tribe spent long periods of time there. That revelation sparked Taylor's imagination.
8: Over in this area, I've built a display case, and in it, I have put different stages of how to make a horn bow out of a ram's horn. I shot this bow hundreds and hundreds of times just practicing and playing with it, and it shoots very, very well. Questions arose more and more well, what exactly did they eat? We knew they were probably eat mountain sheep and other animals, but what kind of plants are available? And so more and more and more, we kept looking at the plant and food resources that were available at high altitudes in western Wyoming. So I thought, well, if it's good enough for them, I want to see if I can do it. So for a six-month period, I just started on a what I call a paleo diet. I ate nothing but wild animals and plants from western Wyoming. It's been very well documented in the literature as well as in the archaeology record of of Mormon crickets being used as food. And so we gathered some of those. That's what these are. They uh, are easy to catch. These were roasted uh, slightly in elk marrow in a hot pan and sprinkled lightly with some Salt Lake salt. People may be a little squeamish about them now, but back in the old days they were uh, a common delicacy. I find them delicious. And here's a, another type of food that i prepared a lot. This is a replica soapstone bowl. It holds probably two quarts of liquid all together. I carved it out of a Uh, Soapstone or steatite cobble I found and in it I've made for you to sample Trout, it's got deer and elk marrow in this. It's got wild onions. It's got Salt Lake Salt and it's got biscuit root in here I'm gonna serve it to you using a ladle made out of a bighorn sheep horn and we're cooking it over a wood fire after I, uh, I started eating wild foods only, almost within days, I noticed a tremendous change in my digestive system and in my body. I felt cleansed inside. I felt it, almost every day, it seemed like I felt healthier. I had more stamina. Uh, we still make l- like the soup that I, we are sampling here, our fish and elk and biscuit root soup here. But it's hard for me to not eat American foods. I, I like pizza, I like beer. I like a, a little toddy of good scotch once in a while. I like, I love my coffee in the morning. And so I'm not a purist, but um, I really miss feeling so good and so healthy and so energized as I did after months of a paleo diet.
5: Tori Taylor's sheep horn Bow is now on display at the Dubois Bighorn Sheep Center, and his book is available on Amazon. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards.
0: For several years, Wyoming's congressional delegation has introduced bills that would allow the state to use more of the Colorado River water in the Fontenelle Dam. Politicians have talked about the economic promise of the dam since it was built for agriculture in the 1960s, and now it's part of the state's plan to store more water. The project wouldn't change the size of the reservoir, but as Wyoming Public Radio's Alana Elder reports, the plan could impact fishing.
12: Trout Unlimited project manager Nick Walrath has a fishtail for almost every bend of the Green River below the Fontenelle Dam in southwest Wyoming. I
13: drive my wife crazy because I'm like, remember that fish you caught right by that tree?
12: As we cross into Seedskiddy National Wildlife Refuge, we spot two young bald eagles perched on the bank looking past us to the yellow bluffs. Wyoming game and fish biologist Robert Keith says this place harbors many kinds of birds including a population of trumpeter swans that comes back every year.
4: This is their destination, the, the reach below Fontenelle Dam, to winter and complete their life history.
12: Keith says waterfowl flock to Sitzkadi because the dam keeps the river flowing year-round.
4: You have a lot more water in the system below the reservoir through the, the low water months than you would if the reservoir didn't exist. In the winter months, it's kept from freezing.
12: The dam keeps the water warmer in winter and cooler in summer, which is why people like Walrath and Keith like to fish here.
4: The fishery below Montanel Dam historically would have been a warm water fishery, not of sport fish like we know, but of native species. But what the reservoir did was create conditions that were favorable for trout and that allows a a really popular trout fishery to persist below the dam.
12: Keith's interested in the plans to put rock or concrete armor called riprap on the lower part of the dam wall. Water is really powerful, and waves constantly knocking against an unprotected dam wall can cause erosion. The project would make it possible to draw more water from the Fontenelle Reservoir to deal with drought conditions. State engineer Patrick Terrell says they'll need federal approval to change the dam's design.
1: They didn't see a need to put the rock down there if the water level was never going to be down there. That was before we experienced the worst 16-year drought of, on the books, and Now we're just sort of making sure that should we ever need that space, that it is available to us.
12: The idea is that an extra 80,000 acre feet of storage at the bottom of the reservoir could protect water users in Wyoming if the state were forced to give up rights to drought-stricken users in downstream states. Senator John Barrasso and Representative Liz Cheney have introduced legislation to approve the RIPRAP project, maintaining that it could make the area more attractive to new users, which could include new businesses. Governor Matt Mead's policy advisor, Nephi Cole, says storage projects like this one could really benefit Wyoming.
3: We have this great access to this resource for recreation, for
1: industrial, municipal, agricultural use. Uh, we can use it for beautification. and you know, it's, uh, Water truly is the most precious commodity we have in the West. And in order for us to be able to utilize it for any use, we have to plan for it. We have to build the infrastructure needed
11: for it.
12: Fontenelle was originally a diversion project meant to turn the area into productive farmland. But after the dam was built, the Bureau of Reclamation tested the idea and found out it didn't work. Right now, a few companies have rights to the reservoir water, though they aren't actively using them. Seedskidi Wildlife Refuge and nearby towns hold others. And then there are the trout and the recreationists who they bring to the river. Game and Fish's Keith says the project could kill a lot of fish, or not. It depends on whether or not they decide to drain the reservoir.
4: The concerns really revolve around like how the project's implemented. If it's implemented in the wet and the reservoir and the river are maintained, impacts mostly go away. If it's implemented in the dry, depending on the time of year, then that's when it becomes concerns.
12: Keith says he and other biologists have met with Engineering Analytics, the consulting firm working to create a plan for the project. A representative of that company said they hear those concerns, but putting RipRap in without emptying the reservoir would be pricey, possibly six or seven times more expensive than if they drain the water. They'll come out with a public recommendation soon, but it could be years before construction begins since the bill still hasn't passed Congress. Trout Unlimited's Walrith has also met with the company. He hopes that if this project does go through, the process will be collaborative.
13: There's a lot of people that have stake in this water and want to see good things happen it's just what those good things are I, I just hope we can all sit at the same table and everybody can see everybody else's point of view
12: leaving the river Walworth and i run into an outfitter who had also been fishing that day ryan hudson hasn't heard much about the Fontenelle project but he's interested he says he spends about 180 days a year guiding out of staters on this and other stretches of the green river
2: that's how we
1: pay our bills pretty much
2: and uh, we have a good population of some natural-sustaining fish, and it's certainly a plus,
3: and we'd like to keep it that way.
12: While supporters of the project would like to see more water in the state, the people using this stream don't want that to happen at the expense of fish. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Alana Elder.
1: Immigration and Customs Enforcement have stepped up arrests and deportations in Wyoming and Colorado this year, which has kept Berenice Rendon busy. In April, she began her post leading the Mexican Consulate in Denver, which works to support Mexican citizens living in Colorado, as well as eastern Wyoming and eastern Montana, Wyoming I mean, Public Radio's Tennessee Watson spoke with Consul General Rendone on her recent trip to Cheyenne to visit with Governor Matt Mead, as well as political leaders, law enforcement, and Mexican community leaders.
3: Is this your first visit
13: to Wyoming? Yes, <laughs> it is. And I understand there's a lot of beautiful places that I need to visit some, sometime in the future.
3: Uh, We know that since Trump began his presidency, that there's been an increase in arrests by um, immigration and customs enforcement in Colorado and Wyoming. What does that mean for your your work and the responsibilities of the consulate?
13: Yeah, well, usually and before uh, this new situation in in the United States, we always work with police departments. We work uh, with immigration officials because we need to be in contact with them to find out where Mexicans or when Mexicans are being arrested. And they are supposed to tell us also according to the uh, Vienna Convention on Consular Relations. Uh, But after this new situation with the government of President Trump, uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Mexico has instructed us to work even harder. So part of our job is to visit also the jails, prisons, detention centers, and um, we have at the consulate, we have created what we call a legal uh, defense center. So we are more um, intentionally trying to find out what the situation is and where to allocate our resources for the defense of the rights of, of Mexicans. We're
3: talking a lot about Mexicans as immigrants and as recent immigrants, but in this part of the country, Mexicans also have deep roots here. And I was wondering when you took the post, did that thought cross your mind that you were going to a place in the United States that less than 200 years ago was Mexico?
13: Yes, of course. We always have that in mind as Mexicans. Uh, You can see it by the names of the state, you know, Colorado is a Spanish word that means reddish or in the red color. Um, this, of course, was part of Mexico. Not only this, uh, California, Texas, Arizona, some other pieces of uh, states that were part of Mexico. And as many of these uh, populations say, we, don't, we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. So that's in, in, in the mindsets of many people here. But we have to uh, work with the reality. There's talk about 35 million people of Mexican uh, descent in the United States. And that is from the people that their families stay here for five, six, seven, or I don't know how many generations. Uh, There's people that came here in the big wave of the bracero program at the Second World War. When the United States needed the workforce, and because the Americans were uh, all over uh, Europe uh, fighting a war. And um, so we have like cycles of immigration, but that is um, an answer to the need of a workforce in the United States. And, and I read the other day that some of the ski areas are complaining because they are not getting enough uh, workforce, so there is a need. We have very successful program with Canada on agricultural workers and Mexico for a long time has tried to do something like that with the United States, but here there hasn't been uh, the conditions for, for that. This feels
3: like one of the more tense moments in uh, US-Mexico
13: relations, and I'm wondering what impact that has on your work it's not in the whole country as things are happening, but there are some states that are even more complicated. Texas just recently passed legislation against the sanctuary cities or sanctuary movement, and there seems to be that in Texas in particular is going to be uh, more complicated to be a, an immigrant, even though it's a state that has a big, big population of immigrants. And then you see California, and it's the opposite uh here in this area, Colorado seems to be like in the middle. We haven't seen any um local um legislation against uh immigrants, and we hope that it doesn't happen uh because that's what is uh, it's more scary for for everyone no. Is part of your
3: work in coming to Wyoming to understand, for example, where Governor Matt Mead's head is at and what his attitude is towards immigrants in his state?
13: Yeah, well, in general, our job is to have good relations or promote relations between Mexico and the different states because it's not only the immigration issue, it's trade, is uh, cultural and education exchanges and any other issue that we can work with the Wyoming government or the Cheyenne uh, local government to improve our relations, but also to um, assist our population.
0: Wyoming Public Radio's Tennessee Watson spoke with General Consul Berenice Rendon during her first trip to Wyoming, including a visit with the governor. 90% 90% of that conversation was about trade issues, according to Governor Meade. He said during a press conference that he is not in support of sanctuary cities.
1: When we come back, we'll learn about a trail building program. This is Open Spaces.
0: Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard.
1: And I'm Bob Beck. This summer, a University of Wyoming trail building program launched a work crew specifically for veterans in need of a job. As Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen reports, the crew is the first of its kind in the country.
3: At
14: Kurt Gowdy State Park, the Wyoming Veterans Trail Crew is hard at work on a trail called Cliffhanger, a narrow single track with rocky ledges along the edge of a reservoir. Near one of Cliffhanger's sharp curves stands a 20-foot-tall dead tree. Crew member Mickey Fennell says it needs to be cut down before it falls on the trail.
3: You know, the first thing you do before you cut down a tree is you look at it and you see which way does this tree want to fall.
14: After the crew determines that, one of the members starts up a chainsaw and soon the tree crashes down. This summer, there are trail crews working across the state. But this one is different. All eight members are veterans. Despite having developed special skills in the military, veterans have trouble getting hired. Wyoming Conservation Corps Director Patrick Harrington says veterans' high unemployment numbers encourage them to start the program. In 2009, 21 per, or 21.6% of veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan were unemployed. Uh, obviously that's much higher than the national unemployment average. There's got to be something to do uh, to capture these folks and to turn them into, uh, not to turn them into, but, but to create productive citizens. Harrington says the program is designed to provide tangible skills, or ones that veterans will be able to write on a resume. Leave No Trace training, Wilderness First Aid training. We'll also offer them upper division University of Wyoming credits, so Uh, kind of retain that academic portion uh, going forward, which I know is is something important to us and to veterans uh, services here on campus. The veterans are learning some of those skills now by maintaining trails. Erosion is a big culprit in trail degradation, and Project Coordinator Evan Townsend says they spend time widening narrow ones and clearing overgrown brush and branches in order to extend the life of the trails. Townsend says these kinds of efforts are valuable to the state, since Wyoming is hoping to ramp up its recreational tourism.
3: Most of the trails we try to build are IMBA, which is International Mountain Biking Association, trying to make state parks as a whole um, kind of a mountain biking mecca.
14: So far this summer, the crew has worked at Glendo State Park and here at Kurt Gowdy, and Townsend says they've really made an impression on him.
3: You know, I've just never worked with a crew that can just nonstop work mean um, these guys are them. They're elite.
14: For some of the crew, like member Kevin Wilson, it was the education award that ultimately encouraged him to apply for the job.
3: I'm
9: going to nursing school this fall at uh, CWC. And um, the AmeriCorps award for this, combined with, you know, like pretty good pay over the course of the summer, you know, it just kind of worked out perfectly with my schedule.
14: The AmeriCorps Education Award is a stipend that can only be used towards tuition or student debt. So in addition to paying for food and housing, they can get a head start on continuing their education. Wilson says it's a good deal for him and his fellow veterans and a great deal for Wyoming.
9: Because, yeah, I don't think that you could, like, really, I don't know, find people with the kind of work ethic that these guys have, willing to put in the type of hours that these guys are willing to put in and do this kind of arduous work.
14: And their schedule is grueling it's 12 days on then two days off and during those 12 days coordinator evan townsend says crew members are living at the work site
3: we live next to the trail we are the work these guys don't get to go home after their 10 hours of work every day they go to camp
14: this is typical for trail crews since work sites are often in remote places mickey finnell says members divvy up chores each night like counting and sharpening tools, getting water, cooking meals, and washing dishes.
8: Dinner, we all cook dinner on different nights. Me and Zach over here cook dinner on the same nights, and we're the best cooks.
14: And if it's not your night to cook, crew member Aaron Martin says there are a lot of ways to unwind after the long day's work. Go walking around, go fishing. A lot of us uh, work out after work. Martin says that might be the best part of the job, just being outside.
7: It's such a beautiful state, too. I mean, it's just so untamed, it seems. There are a lot of fairly untouched places, you know, that you can go see and be one of the few that have seen, like, Sinks Canyon, Wyoming. I mean, like, how many people have been to Sinks Canyon in the country or the world?
14: And that's where the crew will head next to continue improving the state's trails. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Maggie Mullen.
1: Thank you for listening to this edition of Open Spaces. If you missed any part of the program or want to hear a segment again, you can find it on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org.
0: You can also follow us on iTunes. And if you listen to the program there, be sure to give us a rating or review. Our web editor is Anna Rader. And you can follow all of our reporters on Twitter. I'm at News.
1: And you can find me at Butter Bob. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.